You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. In August of this year, the glow of a man whose mix of courage, gentleness, patriotism, and devotion to truth-telling was bright enough to threaten the dominance of the setting sun itself, finally petered out. A lifelong Canadian, he reached the age of 98 when he died. The longest-serving member of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada, he was a member of Parliament before Elizabeth became the Supreme Monarch and served as a Minister of National Defence at an interesting time in the history of Canada-US relations. But beyond Parliament, he would become known as a distinguished articulator of a new vision for preserving what is left of this country's commitment to an independent and sovereign path in an era of globalization and theft. His name is Paul Hellyer. Over the course of the next hour, we're going to probe some of the people who knew of him, met him, and in some cases got captivated by the ideas he brought into the public sphere. We will also hear about the cost he might have paid for the campaigns he chose to champion and what we may now be missing now that his nearly century of activity is spent. On this week's broadcast, Light at the End of His Tunnel, a tribute to Paul Theodore Hellyer. Paul Hellier was born on a farm near Waterford, Ontario, at a location midway between Brantford, the town that would be the birthplace of Wayne Gretzky, and a little fishing town on the north shore of Lake Erie known as Port Dover. His parents were, as he described them, kind, compassionate, God-fearing, and innovative, in assuring a positive influence both on the community and on the family itself. The farm produced wheat, oats, and hay, and livestock for sale. As well, it held apple and pear trees, but the farm was distinct in that it also sold ginseng. Relatively rare, it helped them manage the depression. Paul Hellier had not exactly distinguished himself as a scholar while attending classes, and he got the strap a few times, but he also expressed a desire to get into politics from a very early age. Once done with school, his imagination was captivated by those heavy machines that fly overhead. So in 1940, when he was 17 and out of high school, he took a bus out to the Curtis Wright Technical Institute of Aeronautics in Glendale, California, and took aeronautical engineering. When he graduated in 1941, he obtained a private pilot's license. There was considerable news in both America and Canada about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. When he returned to Canada at Fleet Aircraft in Fort Erie, Ontario, which was then making training craft for the Royal Canadian Air Force as part of Canada's war effort in World War II, Paul would then agree as a young lad to take a role in World War II as a gunner. When his role in the war ended, he met the woman Ellen Jean Valentine Ralph, who would become his first wife. 
he met, went to University of Toronto and earned a Bachelor of Arts, and then began his lifelong quest to become a member of Parliament. On June 27, 1949, he became, at the time, the youngest ever MP to get elected to office. And thus began almost seven decades of serving public in Parliament, speeches, and 15 separate books. He served in Parliament under Liberal Prime Ministers Saint-Laurent, Pearson, and Trudeau. His main accomplishments were bringing nuclear weapons onto Canadian soil and uniting the armed forces. He contested the leadership of the Liberal Party, which ended up going to Trudeau. And he designed a task force for housing and urban development, which Trudeau rejected. Disenchanted, he left cabinet and the party in 1969. Ronald Stagg is a professor of history at Ryerson University. He's taught there over three decades. His research interests include Canadian social history and Canadian-American relations. I inquired as to Paul Hellyer's legacy as a parliamentarian. 50s and 60s, when Paul Hellyer was in office, uh, what unique pressures did the House of Commons go through during that era? Um, it's the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, it's uh, when NATO was really being feeling threatened by uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, there was also uh, quite a difference between conservatives and liberals on and how they reacted to the United States. So there was a lot going on right in that period. The inviting of, of nuclear weapons into Canada uh, right at the outset, uh, what, what kinds of pressures were on him uh, both for and against? Well, the pressure, the main pressures for uh, came from the earlier uh, Saint Laurent government, which had signed uh, the NORAD agreement and said, we're going to accept nuclear weapons. And then John Diefenbaker came in and said, no way, because they would be going to be stationed on Canadian soil, but controlled by the Americans. And he, he had a, a, quite a phobia about uh, the Americans and John F. Kennedy, the president. Uh, so when the liberals came in, basically, uh, they were, in a sense, forced to live up to this idea of accepting nuclear weapons. Uh, so Hellyer was the one who had to implement this. So it was, there were a lot of people in Canada who didn't want nuclear weapons or didn't want nuclear weapons on Canadian soil controlled by uh, American servicemen. Hmm. What about the uniting of the Canadian forces in 67? What, what kinds of, was that a popular move overall or was, was there some contention? Oh, it was very contentious, at least, uh, mainly, but not totally, uh, within the armed forces. They did not want to get, get together. This was not the way it was done. So they really resisted. Of course, they couldn't stop it. Uh, but there were people uh, who were, um, we call them, um, Army, uh, Navy, Air Force enthusiasts, who also felt this is the wrong thing because traditionally your your three parts of the armed forces were kept separate. Hellier's uh, first split from the party and then the beginning of his 
fall from grace was a disconnect between uh, the uh, between the two of them around Hellier's task force on housing and urban development. He ended up leaving cabinet and leaving the caucus ultimately. What can you say about the reaction of Mr. Hellier to Trudeau's position? He wanted the old housing kept. He thought it was wrong to tear down all this good old housing. He wanted it repaired. Uh, and in fact, um, as a result of the task force, the government did pull out of these big projects. Uh, and of course, um, uh, Trudeau was one of these people who wanted to spend the money to have um, sword, uh, reform, I guess you'd say, to have big changes in the social, uh, the social area. And so they really had a, a total disconnect on this. Uh, Paul Hellier essentially said it should be, if we're going to build more houses, it should be done by private in interest, not the government. I really got the impression that he cared about Canada and he felt that government wasn't approaching things the right way. And he even founded two parties uh, when he was at odds with the other parties. I, I really felt that he he thought this was important. He, he said that uh, politics was very hard on his wife. Uh, that she she was uh, not treated nicely. Uh, she was under a lot of pressure, but he was going ahead with it anyway. So I, as I say, I think I think he, in his own way, was a patriot. Uh, but he had his view of Canada. He had a very strange uh, economic policy, which he in fact uh, got from a uh, an economics professor at Ryerson University. Uh, about public and private money and how to rearrange things, something that most economists uh, kind of laughed at. But he saw this as a way to save Canada. Paul Hellier drifted to the Progressive Conservative Party in the 1970s, winning a seat in 1972 but losing it in 1974. He contested that party's leadership as well, which he lost to Joe Clark. He never re-entered Parliament after that, but he did try. He founded and led a new political party, the Canadian Action Party, in 1997. It was a left-leaning party, developed largely on the priorities of Canadian nationalism, monetary and economic reform, and on opposing free trade and corporate globalization. We got hold of an individual who met Paul while he was building the party and chose to represent the party during the election. My name is Howard Bertram. Uh, I live in Car just outside of Carleton Place, Ontario. Uh, since the early 70s, I knew a lot about the Federal Reserve being a private you know, money system. I knew at one time the, you know, the history of the Bank of Canada, the great debates. Um, it was formed in the mid-30s. It became the means for us to finance the Second World War and to do build so much of, of our country. Um, and I've never heard a politician who actually uh, probably um, since the time of its inception understood banking as much as Paul Hellyer did and realized um, just all the negativities to debt financing and to the complete creation of a, a money supply through debt. Um, 
which um, basically is, <laughs> you know, as we go through COVID, you know, it, 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 is it about COVID or is it about the new financial reset? Because the, the major players have run out of room to operate. So Paul was very much ahead of his time. He had courage. And so in 1997, when, when he came to Ottawa and he, you know, was going to form a, a, a political party with the major part of the platform, bringing back the Bank of Canada, um, that really spoke to me, Michael. Um, he was like a magnet. People would come up to him, um, shake hands, uh, feel good to be around him. Um, he was truly a leader uh, at many levels. Um, and, and, base, and most importantly, Michael, he was a very decent, loving, caring human being. You know, he had been a, in the Air Force. He, you know, had fought in the Second World War. He had been in Lester Pearson's cabinet. He ran against Trudeau. Uh, you know, he had met the head of the Federal Reserve. He had met former presidents. And, and yet he was a very humble, down-to-earth person. His family um, introduced ginseng to North America. They grew ginseng, and they did it very massively. Um, and so when the Depression hit, uh, so many people went under, and the banks foreclosed on so many businesses. So this is kind of his sense of humor. So in telling the story, you know, he went on to say, I guess we were so much in debt to the bank um, that they kept us going. And so it was sort of his way of saying, um, um, I, I guess a multiple number of things, including um, you know, how, the, how during the depression, so many businesses were foreclosed, the damage that was done. I mean, it's no different than what we're going through with COVID. And, and the thousands of businesses which have been destroyed um, by by government mismanagement, even though uh, we you know we don't know how many <laughs> of the six hundred billion dollars were were what type of payouts to the WalMarts and the um, Canadian Tires of the world to to go along with the uh, COVID mandates. Well, the mom and pop businesses went under. So in the depression, his you know they had a farm. Uh, law farms went under, but because of what they owed to the bank, the bank kept them afloat throughout the depression, and they flourished. After you know, uh, you know, after the Second World War, that was one of his stories. Another comment by Paul: what, what, he, what, what when I first met with him, he said, "You know, Howard, I've talked to hundreds of my closest friends, colleagues." And he said, I'm lucky if one in a thousand understands banking. And that's part of the challenge we were up against. Most people do not realize, for example, that, uh, you know, when we carry, uh, for those of us who still carry actual dollar, you know, not dollar bills, but, um, you know, a $5, $10, whatever bill, that, that only rep represents maybe two or 3% of all the, what we call money. Most of money, at least 95% of money, is really credit. So you go to the bank, you take out a loan. It's um, the loan is registered somewhere somehow, and and you're given the ability to to either write checks or or do what you have to do for your business or or your mortgage. 
but that's cre- that's money creation and 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 so uh, at one time the bank of canada uh, was responsible for a good chunk of the money creation so when i say it was responsible when the bank of canada creates money it means that the interest doesn't go to private banks it goes back to general revenue and it's one of the reasons why after the second world war when we built our roads and our schools and our hospitals and most people could do things on a one income family um the the interest that was charged um went back to go back into the country and if i may i'd like to give one quick example where that still exists in north america and it's in north dakota north dakota is the only state in the united states that has its only uh, its own uh, state bank and it was formed in the late 19 it was around 1947 48 when it was formed and the interest that has accumulated in north dakota has meant that it has weathered if if you were to um study uh some of their 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 um you know the ups and downs of recessions and how that state has has done versus the other states it's been one of the best because almost half a billion dollars of interest went back into the state economy um and that's one of the reasons why north dakota um economically has weathered most of the storms where so many other states have not um so it's it's a good parallel paul paul understood all this and um and he had the courage to to actually create a a political party and the courage to to bring this to the attention of the canadian people um i have a lot of you know uh, i can't cannot help but have a lot of admiration for him for doing that his legacy is in progress now and i believe that he's going to be proven right he's going to be proven to be a unbelievable visionary and uh, and for most people who really don't know him or understand him or have read his books or have you know uh, seen any of his youtube videos or things like that uh he's going to be recognized on a level that um will bring him into the category of statesman and uh, an elder for uh the canadian people you know we've just truly lost somebody who exemplifies such a great spirit and such a great canadian and such an example for my generation my son and daughter's generation and my grandchildren's generation and i'm just so uh so unbelievably um thankful that i met paul in 1997 and for the, until he basically passed away we we journeyed together and kept in touch what follows is part of an interview i conducted with paul hellier in june of 2016 all oh, this um this system worked beautifully to get us out of the depression to help finance the war but then we also used it in the post-war period um to build infrastructure 
including the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Trans-Canada Highway and the great new airport terminals and so on. And something that most of uh, your listeners wouldn't remember was the Dew Line. This was a distant early warning system of, of radar stations right around the periphery of Canada to warn us of, uh, of uh, the approach of uh, Soviet bombers. And it was very expensive. And we did all of those things and uh, and at the same time launched a, a very, very good social security system without uh, without having to borrow very much at all, virtually no borrowing. And so uh, the system worked like a charm for 35 years, the best 35 years of the 20th century, until 1974, when the Bank of Canada uh, arbitrarily changed the rules. And there was no consultation with uh, Mr. Trudeau Sr. There was no agreement by the government of Canada. Uh, I'm not even sure that the governor himself knew what he was doing. But he made a speech out west saying he was uh, adopting monetarism. And uh, what he didn't say was that that means that we have decided to go along with the Bank for International Settlements in Zurich, Switzerland, and, uh, and stop making cheap money available to our government. And that was part of the deal. I think they were seduced, but the, the, the most important point is that that was the cabal in action. That was the shadow government in action, that they, they managed to get the countries of the world to give up their sovereignty, to, cre to create money for themselves, which is their right, because we the people own the patent to create money. We, we, we own it, not the private banks. But somehow this gang or whatever managed to get people like us to uh, go along with a system where the rules were made in Zurich for the benefit of the richest most powerful, most callous people in the world. And they were, in effect, imposing their will on the rest of us. And this was, talk about lock, loss of sovereignty, this was, uh, this was the most important bit that's happened in my lifetime, and I've been around for quite a while. Barry Zwicker had a career in journalism spanning seven decades. He's also a media critic and documentary producer. I asked him to relate some of his impressions of the man over the course of his life. He was a person who, for instance, just on the political front, uh, did something a bit remarkable, which was to unite the three parts of the Canadian Armed Forces, Army, Navy, and Air Force. And to my knowledge, no one ever had tried to do that before. And after Harper came in, Harper undid it, mainly. He undid it, although it's still now called the Canadian Armed Forces. But that was just one example on the political front of how I think the word visionary would apply. Uh, even more so, he established uh, the Canadian Action Party, actually two versions of it, so a person who starts a whole political party um, probably deserves to be good, given full marks. And uh, he also was 
as far as I can make out for world peace. And it's not every politician who ventures uh, into that. And uh, I mean, he wasn't uh, widely known as a peacenik. He was known as a maverick. <laughs> but uh, still, uh, when I thought back on and just checked a bit about what others had written about him, it turns out that he really was opposed to war, even though he held the uh, position of defense minister for a time. And, uh, and he, he was a kind of a, a maverick who was in favor of public housing. And he had a little bit, if you will, of a socialist bent. And uh, so all those things together uh, caused me, for one, to admire him. And he was not anti-establishment, but he was really non-establishment, which was shown by the fact that uh, he ran for and was elected to office uh, in the liberal and conservative parties, both. And he started his own party and also he was quite friendly at one point with the New Democratic Party. So he certainly was, in that sense, non-establishment. He crossed different political fences. And that made him unusual. That made him really refreshing. And also, uh, he had this column for 10 years in the Toronto Sun. And uh, I myself, my politics are such that I have never admired the Toronto Sun, and they still do not to this day, because it seems to be just inflexibly right-wing. And yet, the years that I actually subscribed to the Toronto Sun had it delivered to my doorstep. I would read Paul Hellyer's column, you know, from time to time, and it just seemed to be uh, sensible enough that it almost didn't belong in the Toronto Sun. His youth would be impacted as far as I can make out, uh, especially by his father, uh, who was an unusual farmer, and he grew, grew ginseng. And uh, I think his, farmer, his father was a different sort of farmer than most farmers. He wasn't just growing wheat or corn. And uh, so he had to find different markets. And so that must have had an impact on on Paul Hellyer. He was uh, impressive as an individual. He was tall and he uh, was good looking and and clear and well speaking. And he was impressive in a word. And I can understand how he would have impressed people in public and in private as he as his career unfolded. And he was, he was reasonable, and he would negotiate, uh, as he did in his political life with different people and uh, in different political parties. And, uh, but I don't remember specifically anything he said. He was favorable. He, was, he had an open mind as far as the narrative about 9-11 was concerned. He was one of the few public figures who... Uh, who were open uh, to considering that the official narrative uh, was wanting. 
so that that impressed me uh, as a person who who long has not only questioned the official narrative but found it to be absurd that uh, this was uh, 9/11 was an inside job. I think there are mountains of evidence about that. So Paul Hellyer uh, would not dismiss people who questioned 9/11. That made him unusual right there. Paul Hellyer's apparent belief that aliens have visited Earth for a long time. And so that's, in, in a way, an unfortunate part of his legacy. Uh, that open-mindedness, his open-mindedness, if you will, on that subject uh, would just simply not be accepted by most people. And uh, so it has loomed large in his legacy, and I think that's unfortunate. But at the same time, it does show his open-mindedness, his willingness to think unconventional thoughts. So it's a double-edged sword as part of his legacy. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, paid for by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. This broadcast is a special presentation relating to the impressive political representative Paul Hellier, who passed away on August 8th of 2021. Paul Hellier continued to press on with his view on building a strong Canada, but the Canadian Action Party in the 20 years of its existence never came close to winning a single seat in the House of Commons. He passed on the leadership in 2003. He continued to press on writing a few books, and he also hooked up with Rocco Galati, the impressive constitutional lawyer in Canada who's forced the government to back away on initiatives on more than one occasion. He worked with Rocco and the Committee on Monetary and Economic Reform to stop the signing of a free trade agreement between Canada and the European Union. Rocco discusses here the story of his meeting Paul Hellier for the first time and his impression of him through the years. Well, my first encounter with Paul Hellier, I would say I was about 14 or 15 years old when he appeared at our door because he was... He had been our member of parliament. I lived, my family, when they immigrated to Canada in 1966, lived in Paul Hellyer's riding here in Toronto. And I first met him when I was a young teenager at the door introducing, uh, you know, introducing the voters to Aideen Nicholson, who he was supporting as his successor as a Liberal Party uh, candidate for the riding. And of course, we... Uh, we elected A.D. Nicholson, and uh, he said, well, you look pretty young and energetic. Do you mind, do you mind uh, helping A.D. out with distribution of uh, collection material? I said, not at all. Back then, you have to remember, everybody was beholden, all the immigrants were beholden to the Liberal Party because uh, uh, Pearson had opened the doors. I have a photograph of my mother and her children for a passport picture in 1959, and I'm about two months old in that picture. We had visas to come to Canada, but Diefenbaker abruptly closed all immigration from Southern Europe, including Italy. And our visas weren't re 
renewed until Lester Pearson became prime minister. And so that's when we came in 1966. Uh, and so that's the first time I met Paul Hedger. He was a very, you know, uh, you know impressive uh, person. I was very politically aware, very young in my life. So I followed uh, parts of his career, including, you know, the unfortunate uh, losing the leadership to Pierre Trudeau by a few hundred votes. It would have been a different country if he had been our prime minister, clearly a better country, if you ask me. He had a better sense. So fast forward from there to 2000, I guess, and two, 2002, uh, where, uh, no, I'm sorry, 2004, thereabouts, just after William Krem came to meet me to do the Comer case. And on a subsequent visit, he walks in with Paul Hellyer. And, you know, Paul Hellyer is very striking. And we're talking about, you know, now this is like 40 years later, right? And I just looked at him and said, Mr. Hellyer. And I was sort of in, I said, do we know each other, son? And I said, yeah. So I told him the story when he came to the door and how I supported Aideen Nicholson. He says, oh, I see. And I was still looking at him. He says, yes, yes, I know what you're thinking, but I'm still alive. <laughs> but I didn't say anything. He says, yeah, but you're probably thinking what everybody thinks, that I'm dead. Because my era has come and gone, right? And so that's when we I, I rekindled a, uh, a, a, a a knowledge of them. And in fact, where, you know, we, we struck relationship as solicitor and client. Now, now that's 18 years ago. Uh, it's, it's, it's nice that you euphemistically say in the last few years, but it's almost 20 years ago that uh, he and Bill Krem were clients. And then, of course, fast forward, uh, you know, six or seven years ago, he single-handedly brought a constitutional challenge to the CEDA, which we filed. And as I said, uh, we had five bases of challenge. And then the first being that they can't just sign it without putting it through parliament, which I was being laughed at, which I've always made that argument. And within four weeks after I filed a statement of claim, sure enough, the House of Lords in England said that prerogative uh, the royal prerogative with respect to treaties no longer exists, which was always my argument, saying that after 1982, there is no more royal prerogative left, uh, residual royal prerogative, because the Constitution uh, has occupied the entirety of the legislative uh, scheme in Canada. So once that decision in England came down without the benefit of a charter, uh, then the government did put it through Parliament. Uh, we said that the you know the treaty was unconstitutional because it did not protect the indigenous rights. It did not it bypassed the province's rights to natural resources under division of power. And I forget the third of those uh, defects in the treaty. And then there was one basis left, and Mr. Hedley didn't said it was too esoteric to pay good money to go after. I think he frankly didn't understand. Frankly, don't the federal government doesn't have any constitutional authority to grant foreign foreign individuals and corporations equal or greater right gives them. The, that issue is never determined in 1974 by the Indian Supreme Court that ruled quite, quite brilliantly. It's the most brilliant judgment, constitutional judgment in the history of constitutional law, which the Supreme Court of Canada took a slice of without giving credit where credit is due in the Quebec secession reference. And what the Indian Supreme Court said was this, even if you have an amendment formula to your constitution, there are certain basic structures and rights you can never amend because to do so would get rid of the very regime that got, got you, gave you the power to amend. Uh, 
So you cannot totally undo the constitution that gave you authority to govern. And so that's a very brilliant analysis. And it was in 1974 that the Indian Supreme Court made that judgment. And uh, so, so that's the argument I wanted to run. But I guess another day, if I'm still here in, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, got to, I got to know Mr. Hellyer quite well during the course of both the Comer and the, uh, and the CETA litigation. Uh, you know, I gave him some advice on his memoirs to avoid libel and slander, and I was glad that he was he, he was able to publish them before he passed away. Uh, he clearly is on the record as saying that what the federal government was doing with respect to the Bank of Canada and these globalization treaties is treason. He was very clear and unabashed about that, and uh, you know, tongue in cheek, I would all often say that, you know, I'm not saying that the government is treasonous, but Mr. Hellyer certainly says that he, the government is engaging in treason. He always did. And he was unabashed in his firm and public view of that. Globalization was, a, was, a, was, a, was a, an incremental uh, public uh, uh, phenomenon from, you know, you go from Bretton Woods in 43, where the leaders say, you know, this ain't working, we've got to redo it. And so you get 1951, the European the embryonic European Union emerges with six or seven countries. And then they wanted a North American free trade zone. And, you know, North American leaders said, no, we're too individualistic here. They'll perceive that as communism. So why don't we usher it in sectorially? So that's why you, you got, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, the auto pact, then the lumber trade deals, the wheat deals. So sectorally with the United States, we began quote, free trade and globalization. And then finally it culminated in the 80s, which was a smooth, you know, it was a continuing uh, uh, pendulum to free trade, the US-Canada free trade accord, and then finally NAFTA, and then everything just, and then with the MAI and the, you know, the, uh, 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 the FTAA and then the Pacific Rim and CETA. So it's been an ongoing development. But the way, the way, I once asked Paul Hellyer, what are these MPs doing it, doing in Parliament and not being able to see through these financial issues? And he quite, in a very depressing, frank answer to me, said that 95% of them are too stupid and unequipped to even understand the issues. So the way you hide your stupidity in Parliament is by saying nothing and just doing what you're told by the party leader. And you see this phenomenon, you know, they vote on a bill that's 2000 pages long that they get two weeks before it's tabled. And how could they even possibly read it, let alone make any assessment? Uh, and so it's a top, you know, there is no democracy in Parliament left. It's top heavy. And as Paul Hellyer said, you know, uh, I, I said to him, how many MPs currently do you think understand fiscal policies and, and all of that? And he said, you're lucky if three or four of them up there understand. Hmm. You know, mainstream media, because they, they're as stupid as the 95% of the MPs elected and don't get the issues, just wrote it off. Often they would say it's passe economics. You know, and saying things like it's passe economics is like saying it's passe growing of tomatoes. Certain things are not passe or passe breathing. 
Certain things are neither passé nor current, nor futuristic. They just are. And so the economic theories that they were propounding were still valid. They were still valid, right? And economic theories are like uh, pedagogical theories in the school system. They come and go, right? During the Bank of Canada case, we were arguing for use of Section 18 of the Bank of Canada that allowed for the Bank of Canada to lend federal and provincial governments one third and one quarter respectively of their annual budgets, so long as they were paid in the next fiscal year, which was easy. So you paid them and then you reborrowed them every year. And that mechanism was used from 1937 till 1974. And that's why Canada got rid of its World War II debt using that, built all those highways and that industry money was earmarked for what they call human infrastructure, that is roads, schools, universities, hospitals, right? And it had no inflationary impact whatsoever. So in 1974, we joined the Bank of International Settlement, a Nazi established bank, by the way. Uh, and, and that bank, that bank said and put out a directive to all central banks, including Canada's Bank of Canada, that no more interest-free or interest preferential loans to the national government. Of course, that was easy for them to say because every other bank on that Bank of International Settlements was a private bank. Canada was the only, Bank of Canada was the only public bank. So the federal government in a 14-year battle was successful in resisting this lawsuit by the Supreme Court of Canada on the second round of the appellate chain, shutting the doors to us and not allowing us to have the case heard. What's the irony? Along comes COVID and Pierre Trudeau is printing money through the Bank of Canada. Where do you think he's getting all that money? He's getting it from the same source his government said we don't have when we asked for it for human infrastructure wow. expenditure, okay? <laughs> so 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 there you go there you go we we won the battle but we, we lost the battle but won the war for nefarious reasons now he's not using it for the purposes it was designed he's using it to 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 piece off his friends and follow a false agenda for ulterior motives but he's using that mechanism right where's the serb money coming from do you think you think it's coming from the new york bankers no they could never lend that kind of money in at uh, commercial interest rates to a government and all the governments in the world. They're all just printing it, Michael. Wow. And there's no inflationary impact because money, money is a, money is a, is a, uh, is a, is a psychological construct that can be manipulated to certain ends, but doesn't have an actual physical reality or consequence to uh, uh, subdivided money into real money and fictitious money. And the real money attaches to physical commodities. The fictitious money is cash, you know, stocks, bonds, all that shit that really doesn't exist in reality yeah. that we can manipulate and create how we want. Yeah. Uh, I do. And so that, that, was, that was understood by Mr. Krem and Mr. Hellier. What would you say reveals, what, what's revealing about it? How, how does he take these battles in sequence? Well, I think he was an ultimately, he ultimately, he was always a practical individual steeped in the reality. That's why I liked him. 
and revered him and respected him to no end because there was nothing bullshit about him. He was very civil. He was old school. He was, a, he was a gentleman, but there was nothing about him that played into these fictions of manipulation. He was feet on the ground, practical, and would not put forward proposals that weren't practical and doable. The fact that, you know, uh, the world didn't follow him is, is just, you know, just that. Uh, that's course of history. You know, it's like the COVID when they say, well, most people believe. And I say to people, <laughs> show me one instance, show me one instance in the history of human, human and human society where the majority was ever right about anything. You know, the Renaissance church was wrong about the earth being flat, on and on and on, right? You never have a time in history when it's the majority who believes something. It's always the minority that has it right, but wrong against the majority contemporaneously, but who has it right in the future in retrospect. And that's the sad reality of human existence is that the minority is not, is only proved right later. And I'm sure Paul Heller's ideas and policies will be in time proven right and probably implemented. And they're being partially implemented by this prime minister now for the wrong reasons. And one of the, one of the uh, blowbacks I've said publicly will result from the Trudeau throwing all this money at people during the COVID is in the future when people need people need social welfare mechanisms and he's and somebody says we don't have the money so what are you talking about you spent almost a billion a trillion dollars on COVID in under 18 months how do you not have the money you just created it you can create it for this no government is ever going to be able to say we don't have the money yeah right? okay <laughs> yes, and that's and that's 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 Paul Hillier and Bill Graham you know saying we do have the money we just have to use it right he left behind a legacy that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. It was a legacy of his time, and that is responsible government, practical solution for real people, right? And, and a lack of narcissist self-interest and greed in his proposals and the way he saw the world. And ultimately, he was a public servant. He served people. He never served himself and his friends first. That's what I saw in Paul Hellyer. And that's what, as I, again, that's why I respected him uh, to no end. One of the more controversial views of Mr. Hellyer was his outspokenness about extraterrestrials and UFOs. This erupted in a public way in 2005. He's since become a highly revered figure among the people of the world who are devoted to ufology. However, he did pay a price from the standpoint of hearing his well-thought-through positions on a number of other issues. Grant Cameron is a ufologist. His interests have turned to the involvement and actions of the President of the United States in the UFO problem. He has made over 20 trips to the National Archives and most of the various presidential archives looking for presidential UFO material. He recently wrote the book, the Canadian Government UFO Story, The Wilbert Smith Files. In his discussion with me recently, he told me about his encounter with Mr. Hellier and his value to UFO research as a whole. Where his interest came from was he was um, he had a bunch of uh, um, cabins north of Toronto. He lived in Toronto. And he would sit there during the summer and he would read books and he would write and stuff like that. And he was reading the book uh, The Day After Roswell by Corso. 
And his son-in-law came up and he saw Paul was reading this book. And he said, what are you reading that for? That's garbage. I mean, that, that's absolute nonsense. What are you, are you crazy? This is nonsense. And he went, what, really? It's nonsense? And then the son, son-in-law said, yeah, it's crazy. You shouldn't read that stuff. And then a couple of days or a couple of weeks later, the son-in-law comes back to him and he said, I just talked to a two-star general and he said that you should call him. And so uh, Paul phones up this general and he wants to know, what about the Corso stuff? And the general says, this is a famous line that Paul always used. He said, it's, it's all true and more. And that's when Paul went down the rabbit hole. Once he heard from this two-star general, U.S. Air Force general, that this is all for real, then he just sort of went sort of off the deep end and he started to talk about it, which uh, give him credit but he really wasn't a researcher. So basically he was just repeating what other people were saying. There wasn't really much that Paul had because he didn't know anything as secretary of defense, uh, minister of defense. And he was just basically repeating like what was in the, the Corso book and, and what people were putting out about area 51. Paul had these documents when he met with me and he said, um, you know, I, 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 um, I, I didn't, I didn't know. And he pulls out these documents and there were documents. And I said, Paul, I've seen these documents. These documents are not top secret. They're not secret. They're just, you know, uh, material from the National Research Council and stuff like that. I've seen all these documents. And um, so that's where we sort of left it, that he basically said that he didn't know anything. And so a lot of people interpret that he was this inside guy and had all this sort of stuff. He basically really didn't know anything. And uh, he, he did step ahead. And even if he had said stuff that was wrong, because a lot of the stuff that he was repeating, I don't think was really true. He was just repeating because someone said it. But even that helped us because it was still the former minister of defense that was saying this. So it raised the consciousness. And that's what it's all about. It's raising consciousness that people know that they're, the government is actually involved. So even though the stuff that he was saying may not have been totally accurate, he was doing us a favor in terms of stepping out and putting his, his reputation on the line to uh, promote this kind of stuff. What I would say that he knew for sure was this thing about this emergency management guy he had some documents. He had actually tried to get his documents when we were confronting him in 1970. It's not that he was covering up anything because he actually said, I'm going to try to get my files because he had, he had left the government at that point. And he tried to start his own political party. So he was an outsider as well. He tried his own political party and stuff. And so he'd gone to the, um, to the, where they keep the files for the, the members of parliament. And um, he was looking for this file, the UFO file for the Department of Defense. And he said he could never find it. And um, so I believe that, that he was telling the truth. I don't believe Paul was ever lying about what he had. But he, I don't know if he had any better uh, insight onto what was going on than you and I. Plus the fact that people would be trying to set him up because they would be feeding him material. And it's, it's the old game in the UFO thing. Is how do you know what's real and what's not real? You know your own experiences are real. But there's so much counterintelligence and there's so much uh, material that it's hard to vet that you can you can put it out there. But um, it's very hard to determine what's real and what's not real, what's true and what's not true. Apart from uh, you know the, the the basis of these uh, you know th his unique willingness to investigate and expose, how did he strike you as an individual? Oh, he was absolutely as straight and arrow as you could be. He was a very religious man that a lot of people don't really realize. Uh, he, he, he went to church every Sunday. He was uh, uh, very, very, uh, had a lot of um, um, integrity in terms of morals. His big, his big issue was government. He was very, not government, banking. 
he really got into the whole thing about the how the banking system was set up how there's a bunch of people who run the you know the federal reserve and they're not elected and they're they're basically uh you know charging people interest for money that they're just printing and this is a big scam and it's a big uh you know that kind of stuff he wrote a lot of books on that so he he was a very honest guy and very outspoken and as uh, spoke his piece on on various things and um was highly highly respected for his word that that was his main thing that he you could you could trust paul that um he he was he was basically telling the truth the thing was what he was being told where was he getting it from that was my my concern with with some of the stuff that he was putting out victor vigiani was another close personal friend of paul hellier late in his life he's the news director at zeland communications which is focused on getting information out there about UFOs and the UFO experience. I got Victor to comment on the more credible issues on banking and globalization, combined with apparently less credible stuff in the broad public on extraterrestrials. Personally, uh, getting to know Paul went back to 2005 when um, I was doing a, a radio program at CFRB here in Toronto, and we got some information from a listener that uh, for whatever reason, the listener said, Mr. Vigiani, you have to talk to Paul Hellyer. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> uh, it's a little late now, but uh, I took the information and decided to call Paul, I guess, uh, four or five days later. And um, when I made the call to Mr. Hellyer, I indicated to him, I said, uh, you know, Mr. Hellyer, I know you're a former minister of defense, et cetera. Um, and you're reading this book, The Day After Roswell by Philip J. Corso. Uh, we're having a symposium in September of, of 2005. We'd like you to be our keynote speaker. And uh, at the time, he said, oh, no, I could never do that. <laughs> so basically, he, he turned me down to the very beginning of, of, the, whole, of the whole scenario. Um, I said, well, okay, change your mind. I'm going to give you a call back in about two weeks after you finish reading the book. And we can chat then. He said, fine. So about two weeks later, uh, I did call him back. And I said, have you reconsidered? Uh, having a symposium at the University of Toronto uh, on September 25th, 2005. Um, and he said, yes, I will do it. Off the floor. <laughs> Surprised that he sort of had acquiesced in that way. Um, it, it just began a history between uh, myself and him. Plus, uh, in Canada, it became something um, not of a serious kind of consideration uh, by him. But later on, um, after he received this book, and I guess it was just before 2005, uh, it became something very, very serious for him. And he became very passionate, not necessarily just because of the UFO issue itself, but because he was one who demanded transparency. He, he detested secrecy and governments holding back information. It was one of the strong uh, sentiments that he put forward every speech that I, uh, that I ever heard him give and also in all of his books this idea of government secrecy and the government not working for the people but against the people with respect to secrecy there was something that he just could not uh, could not abide by so that's the reason that, that the passion came out and then eventually became much more um uh, used the word literate or at least aware of with many many aspects of the ufo issue by getting in contact with a whole plethora of UFO researchers that I introduced him to. And based on those kinds of meetings, uh, he became uh, very entwined within the 
the whole community of UFO researchers. And he became, because of his books, uh, a major player internationally uh, with respect to UFOs. The Bank of Canada and his philosophy on, on how Canada can, could have come out of um, the recession the way it, it, the way it did not were very, very strident in his, in, his, in his book. He laid it out very cleanly. And a lot of people, uh, I guess, didn't want to digest the information or thought it was too far beyond the curve. But initially, uh, people eventually got to see that he was right. And the way that the, uh, that the Canadian government came out of the, the war by printing more money and uh, putting it into infrastructure and boosting the economy is the, is the way to come out of it. And that was what he was an advocate for. Now, how you entwine that issue with the UFO issues uh, is, is something that he did quite well, because if you look at the banking issues and the, the financial problems that we're having, it's all related to the fossil fuel industry and the way the fossil fuel industry has a, has a stranglehold on the global economy in every way, shape and form. And he was dead set against carbon-based carbon fuels. And if you, if you look at uh, the corporations that are investing time, money, and influence within governments with respect to fossil fuels and denying the fact that there are technologies out there, anti-gravitic technologies, electrogravitic technologies, um, zero-point energy technologies, all of which are being totally ignored by the international community. And uh, the fossil fuel industry is just you know, stuffing oil down the throat of anything that moves. And, uh, and Paul Hellyer did not want to stand for that. So when he took on the financial issue, he also brought in the technologies that would resolve the carbon fossil fuel um, dilemma that the planet faces. And that was one way that he linked those two issues very strongly. And he gained a lot of support for that because that the, the technology are in fact there. There's no doubt that the, uh, that the US government has been experimenting with anti-gravitic uh, technologies and even possibly technologies involved with crashed UFOs. So that's all a matter of uh, something that Paul believed firmly, knew firmly, and was in contact with international uh, sources that told him that this was in fact the case. What caused Paul Hellyer to decline rapidly was not a long illness, nor any kind of serious impairment. On June 19th of 2021, he sustained injuries to the head when he fell. He died just short of two months and two days after his 98th birthday. He leaves behind his second wife, Sandra Hellier, three children, five grandchildren, six great-grandchildren, 15 books, and numerous fans across the country. That is the end of our tribute to the life and legacy of Paul Hellier. For the next two weeks, we take a hiatus, playing rerun shows, and return in early January with our annual review of the year. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.